Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Hi, everyone. This episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. So click on the URL in the show notes, answer three questions, and get CME credit. So with that, let's get started. Ugh. Sometimes I don't even know the point of multidisciplinary rounds. I mean, it is such a time suck. The way I see it, PT tells us where they need to go, and social work just needs to make that happen. Sad to admit, but early on, there were many times where I thought to myself, oh, patients waiting for placement, not medically active, moving on, not my problem. But the more I did patient care, the more I realized that I had some pretty large knowledge gaps about where I was sending my patients to. Yeah, and you are not alone here. I used to have no idea what my role was in discharge planning or even that I had a role at all. But when I became a geriatrician, that all changed. And I'll give you an example. So recently I cared for this patient. He had dementia. He was admitted because of safety concerns at home. And he really couldn't take care of himself at home. He didn't have the needs to qualify him for a rehab. And the case manager and family members, they were looking to me for the recommendation on where he should go next. That patient could have gone to a nursing home, an assisted living facility, home with services like a visiting nurse or a home health aide, or just had adult day health. Yeah, there's just so many options. And if I didn't know these places could offer patients, how could I appropriately advocate for him and what would be best? And that's exactly what we hope to do today. Breakdown are many different dispo options for patients. There's subacute rehab, skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, assisted living, LTACs, acute rehab, and many more. So the way we're going to do this is first, we'll start with number one, what are the differences in resources that each of these places offer our patients? Number two, we'll clarify which patients are even eligible for which specific dispo options. And number three, we'll talk about how insurance may impact decisions about where patients go. And lastly, number four, How much is actually covered? Be in the know about the bill that your patient may or may not be facing when they go to some of these places. And the point is not to remember all the details that we'll discuss, especially when it comes to the financial piece, because we recognize that this is very complex, even for somebody like me who lives and breathes this stuff on a daily basis. And it's important to know that things are always changing, and some of it, as we'll highlight, is very state-specific. Right. But our hope is that you will feel more empowered the next time you're in an interprofessional meeting and these decisions about disposition comes up, or when you're talking to patients and their family members and they want some guidance through some of these decisions too. 
And that brings us to episode number three of our interprofessional series, focusing on discharge options. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a general internist at NYU, and I'm joined again by... I'm Dr. Ryan Chippendale, a geriatrician at Boston University. And I'm Dr. Gabby Mayer. I'm an intern at NYU. And in this series, we hope to highlight the perspectives of people that we don't usually get to hear and go places we usually don't get to go, especially when we spend most of our times in the clinic or in the hospital. Speaking of going places that we usually don't get to go, let's play a little game that I like to call, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Okay, Ryan, I see what you did there with that Dr. Seuss reference, Mm -hmm. but it's more like, Oh, the places your patients will go. Right, or it's like, Congratulations, today is your discharge day. You have enough oxygen in your lungs. You have passed your trial of void. You worked with physical therapy. Oh, the places you'll go. After we await prior authorization woes. Gray is a poet, and I didn't even know it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, shall we first venture into the most common discharge destination, the SAR, which is also known as subacute rehab? Yes, and something that I found very confusing, even after researching this, is the difference between a sniff and a SAR. Can someone please enlighten me here? Well, Gabby, you have every right to be confused because basically they're the same exact thing. Oh, great. So I'm not crazy. No, not at (laughs) all. (laughs) So then why not just pick one word? Wouldn't that be nice? The terms are often used interchangeably. But if you want to break it down to the nitty gritty nuances, so a sniff refers to a skilled nursing facility which is the actual building or facility where the SAR or subacute rehab takes place. Okay, so we're talking facility versus services. That makes sense. Yeah, you know, as a hospitalist, I've sent a lot of patients to a sniff where that SAR actually happens, as you just pointed out, Ryan. But honestly, I've never actually stepped a foot inside a skilled nursing facility. Yeah, and... I have gone to many of them, and I'm going to fill you in on one of my geriatrics dirty little secrets. Go for it. That sniff is actually a nursing home. See, this is why you have to have friends who are geriatricians. They know all of the life hacks. (laughs) Yes. And us geriatricians and, and everyone else gives it a sexier name of the skilled nursing facility because the people who are eligible for subacute rehab have some skilled need and they do get more services, but that actual facility is the same as a nursing home. And I want to clarify what you mean by sniff services because this was a big knowledge gap for me. So by services, you're really talking about some skilled need. So physical therapy, occupational therapy, medications that come through picks or midlines. And these are services that for whatever reason, this patient can't easily get at home. Right. And the other thing that we have to think about when we're considering a SAR for a patient is whether the person is rehabable. And what I mean by that is that it's not typically your bed-bound or advanced dementia patient and has to be somebody that physical therapy can actually improve their functionality. Yeah. So once these subacute rehab patients get to these sniffs, which sounds like is in a nursing home also, what can they expect in terms of the number of nurses, the number of clinicians? Is it the same as they expect in the hospital? So so nursing homes um, have to have on staff uh, a certain number of registered nurses. 
the staffing ratio in the day is, is higher than in the nighttime. And they generally then fill in everything else with either CNAs, you know, certified nursing assistants, or medical assistants. So that voice you may recognize is Susan Hedlund, who is a social worker from OHSU who's joined us for prior episodes. And I want to put some numbers behind what she's saying. Typically, daytime staffing in these SNF or SAR facilities is one nurse to every 20 to 25 patients. And at night, that ratio changes. That one nurse is now covering an entire floor of 40 plus patients with only the help of a few aides. Yeah, that is very different from the hospital. You know, usually on the medicine floors, you'll have five patients assigned to a nurse, and even they're running around with their plates pretty full. Here's another knowledge gap for me. I read that most SNFs are staffed by LPNs. I realized I don't know what an LPN is or how that's a distinct role from other nurses like RNs. And again, you're not alone. Um, I work alongside these folks all the time, and I actually had to look up what the acronym for LPN stood for. So it's actually a licensed practical nurse. And the difference here is that they have two years of nursing education versus an RN that we typically work with in the hospital, which is a registered nurse who has four years of experience and holds a bachelor's in nursing. And Ryan... What's the staffing like for the clinicians at most of these nursing facilities? Yeah, so that clinician oversight piece really shocked me when I started in geriatrics. So get this. New admissions are often admitted by phone by someone like me who doesn't even know the patient or work in the nursing home. And in my state of Massachusetts, the strict regulations are that any clinician, so this can be an NP, a PA, an MD, is not required to see a patient for 48 hours after admission. Oh, I'm just thinking about what happens to all those Friday afternoon discharges to SAR. Yeah, and it's almost impossible for you as the discharging clinician to know the level of oversight that your patient will have once they get to the facility. Because there's just so much variability with the different practices out there. But one thing that you should keep in mind is after that initial admission eval, which happens within the first 48 hours, the clinician is only required to see a patient every 30 days. Now, I will tell you most practices see subacute patients much more frequently, like weekly or even more so if they're sick. But these are the bare minimum regulations, which keep in mind are state-specific. I am just so humbled by how much I didn't know about subacute rehabs. And yeah, this is definitely going to give me a pause before those Friday afternoon discharges, especially for those more complex patients. I think it's so easy for us on the inpatient side to be like, oh yeah, sniffs, they have capabilities to do X, Y, and Z. But I can imagine it can be pretty difficult with the level of supervision from the clinician and the nursing side of things. Agreed. I think I'm going to store that key about timing in my back pocket. So since I have you dispo wizards on the line with me, I'm going to ask you one more question. Who actually pays for subacute rehab services? Yeah. So from what I understand in terms of insurance, it's really going to be patients who have Medicare that are going to get their subacute rehab stays covered. And actually before this, I didn't understand why so many times on multidisciplinary rounds for social workers or care managers would say, oh, the patient has Medicare, should be an easy placement, no worries. Now I get it. Patients would go, they can stay um, on your Medicare benefits. It's up to 100 days. Um, for your rehab needs, um, the first 20 are covered 100% with no copays by Medicare, and then the next 80 has copays. 
uh, one of the things we look at in that situation is, is what their secondary insurance is. That's Todd Selmer, a case manager from the University of Utah. And by secondary insurance, Todd is talking about, say, the patient either has Medicaid or has some other private insurance that might pick up the slack for that 20% copay from the skilled nursing facility. If they have a secondary insurance, that the copay is covered for the, the 80 days. Um, copays typically, I, I, last time I looked, I think they were in the 150, 170 a day, which is kind of out of reach for most people. In case you're like me and can't do that math in your head as quickly, uh, <laughs> that would be an out-of-pocket cost of $5,000 for a one-month stay. Yikes. I don't know about you guys and your patient population, but uh, that's definitely out of reach for most of my patients. And honestly, I don't even think I could afford it. That is definitely more than my monthly rent and food budget combined. And that's scary given that you're in New York City. So expensive. <laughs> so expensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and the crazy thing about the number of dollars per day is that we don't even know how long our patients are going to be in those subacute rehab beds for. Sure, it can be a few weeks, but for some of those complicated patients, it can be months. And so those numbers can really add up. In that same vein, Shreya, many of our patients voice frustration because we tell them, oh, we'll just get you somewhere for a few weeks to get you stronger. But in fact, once they get there, they're only working with therapy a few times a week for a few hours at most. Yeah. Plug for a future interprofessional episode that we're actually going to do on physical therapy where we delve exactly into that topic. Yeah, I really can't wait for that because I feel like I still have some knowledge gaps in that area as well. Me too. Yeah. And it's really important that we don't oversell it to patients because we don't want them frustrated when they get there. But at the same time, it's also important for us to highlight the importance of a SAR as a bridge to get these patients home. So let's wrap up all this wisdom in a little summary. A SAR takes place in a SNF, which is a physical nursing home. It's a place for patients with specific skilled needs, so here we're talking about PT or OT, that they can't easily arrange for at home. And it's worth noting that oversight is different than at the hospital, with one nurse assigned to many patients and sparser physician supervision. And on the subject of insurance, I just want to leave you with one quick takeaway. It can be easier for Medicare patients to get coverage. Uh, so now that we, mostly me, are on the same page about subacute rehab, what actually are the differences between patients who are good candidates for a SAR bed versus a nursing home bed? Let's say you have a frail elderly person who um, needs help with bathing, with feeding, and with walking, right? but doesn't have anything acutely medical. And so that's, that's a lot of our frail elderly, right? right? So a lot of our frail elderly who, who need some assistance, but um, don't need a lot of medical intervention per se. Right. So it sounds like a nursing home patient may have some medication management or some intermittent blood pressure monitoring, but this level of care is nowhere near the patients that are in a subacute rehab bed. And it's more so these nursing home patients require assistance with their activities of daily living and their families can't really provide that at home for them and they can't afford 24-7 care at home either. Yeah, and this is exactly why nursing home level patients are often commonly referred to as long-term or custodial care residents. It's because they live there. 
And in many nursing homes, these long-term care residents are actually mixed among those subacute patients that we were talking about before. And that's why that staffing ratio of one nurse to 20-ish patients is usually the same as what one would expect for the subacute rehab patients. The nurse might actually be taking care of some long-term care residents and some subacute patients. And at least from an acuity standpoint, that does sound like a healthy mix of patients. Yes, it does on a normal day, but trust me that it doesn't mean that those long-termers can't become active from either a medical or behavioral standpoint, which can get really busy really fast for these nurses. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what I'm seeing in the nursing homes with this COVID pandemic right now. So these long-termers that usually are relatively stable are getting really sick alongside the already sick subacute patients. And the nurses are really stretched thin. There are lots of policy lessons to be taking away from this pandemic, and this is definitely one of them. So we've talked a lot about nurse oversight, but I'm curious, is there an MD oversight difference? And actually, let's broaden this question. What is the MD oversight for nursing home residents? Yeah, so in my state of Massachusetts, the strict regulations state that nursing home residents only have to be seen by an MD every 120 days. That's every four months. Shocking. Again, they are often seen more regularly by a lot of nursing home practices and docs, especially if those acute issues come up that we were just talking about. But I like to think of these more like complex but stable primary care patients that you'd really only be seeing in the clinic every three to four months. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy I haven't thought about before. Thinking of a nursing home patient getting the same level of care you might give them in an outpatient setting every three to four months. Another question for you guys, who actually pays for the nursing home beds? I actually know the answer to this one. Nice. Okay, so nursing home care is generally paid for either privately, so there I'm talking about out-of-pocket, or through something called long-term care insurance, which is like life insurance, or on the public side, it can be paid for by Medicaid. It's not paid for by Medicare, and it's not paid for by regular private insurance. Those don't cover nursing home care. All right, as someone who's not a health policy wonk, I think the big teaching point for me is that Our patients who have Medicare can get their subacute rehab stays covered, and our patients who have Medicaid can get their nursing home level stays covered. But another thing I've also noticed is that it takes so long for us to find those Medicaid patients a nursing home level bed. And let me break this down for you on why this could be. So say I'm a nursing home administrator, and I'm trying to keep my nursing home financially sound, and let's pretend that I have 10 beds available right now. Medicare is going to pay me a significant amount more for subacute patients lying in those beds rather than Medicaid will pay for long-term care residents. So if I'm that nursing home director, I want as many Medicare patients in my facility as possible so that I get higher payments. Oh my goodness. The money aspects money. of this are mind-blowing. I know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. This is why I'm also not a business wonk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With factors, that is possible. 
Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Okay, so now I think I have SARS and nursing home patients straight. But what about assisted living facilities? I really feel like they remain some of the biggest enigmas in this whole schema of dispo options. Agreed. That is the big black hole. And that's because there's a lot of variability in each assisted living facility and on which patients make good candidates for each different type. I'll give you a general rule of thumb, and that's that patients in assisted living facilities are more functional and have usually a higher level of independence in their activities than, say, a nursing home or SAR patients, but they do require more assistance than they can typically get at home. So what you're describing actually sounds to me more like living at home with a home health aide than it is a formal nursing home. Correct. Typically, the care is performed entirely by aides at assisted living facilities, not by nurses like in the nursing home. There is usually one nurse on site who's responsible for supervising all of those aides, but he or she does not have that traditional nursing role. So they don't pass meds or check blood pressures like we talked about in SARS or nursing homes. And if a patient gets sick, they will call the PCP or they'll send the patient to the emergency room. Yeah, that's good to know. Something else I've learned is that not all assisted living facilities are the same. Some of them, not all, actually have different levels of care under just one roof or within a complex of buildings. Yes, and to set this up, there's three levels of care that we typically think about with these facilities. The first is independent living or senior housing. The second is that true assisted living level of care. And then the third is a memory care. And let's start off with senior housing. So those are like apartments and people can come down for meals or not, depending on what they need. But there are people available around the clock so that if they have an emergency or um, they need some help if they've fallen, you know, there are people in the building at all times. But essentially, the person has to be independent in their ADLs, able to feed themselves and bathe and dress and all of that. The next level of care is the quote-unquote true assisted living level of care, which kind of has these quote-unquote a la carte services that really are tailored to an individual resident's needs. Assisted living is one where you might have someone come to your room to give you medications, may help you with some bathing, um, and just some general non-medical assistance other than, you know, dispensing medication. They have one nurse on at night and two aides for 60 patients. So a little bit of help, but not a lot. So most times people in the assisted living setting are mostly independent. And then there's memory care. Now, this is the exception to the rule about nursing supervision, because in this level of assisted living, It really requires uh, well-trained staff around dementia management, medication management, in addition to just other supports 
that patients with dementia might need in their activities. And then the third category that exists in both nursing homes and assisted livings are memory care. And memory care are are usually locked units, and those are for people who have uh, more advanced dementias. Mm. Um, And both nursing homes and assisted livings generally have both of those things available or have memory care available. So that the idea is that people can age in place and stay in the same facility even if their care needs change. And just a note on assisted living facilities generally, I've been warned that there is a lot of variation from one assisted living facility to the next in terms of quality, in terms of services provided. This is absolutely true, Gabby, for all of the different types of facilities that we've discussed thus far. But I do tend to worry or think about the variability most with assisted livings. Well, I was working with a family recently uh, that did have resources, and they picked an assisted living that had lots of, in addition to food and assistance, they had lots and lots of social activities and different things that people could participate in. Um, Other places have far less. And so I always encourage families to go and interview and see what services are included because a lot of times there's an extra cost for the extra services that are added in. As Susan alluded to, these can get a little pricey. Because the vast majority of assisted living facilities, most patients are paying out of pocket. Yes, there are some states who have some waivers for patients who can't pay, but it is definitely on the higher price range. I'll leave you with one last Jerry Pearl as well, is that usually our patients will not get discharged directly from the hospital straight to a brand new assisted living facility. The beds are really hard to find, and it requires a lot of paperwork and legwork, mostly on the family and PCP side of things. So they're really only going to be discharged from your service to one of these facilities if they came from there. And if you are thinking that they newly need an assisted living facility, you usually need a bridge plan until that can be arranged. So again, let's sum things up because we've covered a lot of ground. Assisted living facilities are what we traditionally think of as senior community living. These facilities have someone on site 24 hours a day, but the level of care really varies depending on the patient's level of independence. It can range from full independence to, in memory care, a bit more dependence on staff. But unlike a SAR, these patients have no skilled needs. And just given how much variability there is, I think my biggest takeaway is that next time I have a patient who's admitted from an assisted living facility, I think I'm just going to ask, hey, what resources do you have available to you? And just think about, okay, is that place going to be appropriate for this person at the time of discharge? All right. So the next few places we'll go, bringing back that Dr. Seuss theme, will be relatively quick. I'm going to call this the lightning round. Because luckily, these facilities have more narrow criteria for them. Thank goodness, right? Uh, Let's pretend we have a physical therapy note that says patient would benefit from over three hours of therapy a day. When you're at those discharge planning rounds, where are you going to recommend that this patient goes? Right. So the three-hour thing always makes me think about acute rehab. I'm trying to call up physiatry to make sure they're on the case as soon as possible to evaluate the patient. Todd helps us explain which patients are good candidates for acute rehab. Like if you're getting around really well, 
and then they can get you back up to your baseline pretty quick, then they go to an acute care rehab, which I think the most days are, you know, in that two week window and, and then back to home. And the key here for qualifying for acute rehab, unlike subacute rehab, is that patients need to be capable of doing three or more hours of therapy a day. Caveat here is that this is all the therapies combined. So physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language pathology, all those need to add up to that three-hour requirement. And just a quick note about finances at the end. Similar to a SAR, acute rehab is paid for by Medicare or private insurance. For our next place, say you've been caring for a patient who needs trait care, is on multiple antibiotics, maybe needs some complex wound care, and is just too sick for a SAR. Where shall he go? Right. So every time I hear trach, especially if the patient is vent-dependent on that trach, I'm thinking about LTAX. The name here truly captures what can be provided at this facility. It's short for a long-term acute care hospital. They are often utilized for people who don't necessarily need to be in an acute care hospital any longer, but their care needs are so great that most nursing homes aren't able to accept them because they have such such high acute needs. It might be um, a person who is still vent-dependent and not able to be weaned easily. It might be someone who um, is is fairly obese and needs a lot of assistance just in in getting out of bed and ambulating, people with really difficult to heal wound care. Um, So they end up being at a subacute setting uh, where they can get more nursing care and it's under the supervision of, of their hospitalists in those settings. Just as Susan pointed out, unlike subacute rehabs, in these LTACs, there is going to be an in-house MD 24-7 and a lot more nursing oversight. So really kind of that H in LTAC standing for hospital is, is there in terms of the level of oversight. Okay, we have made it. Last but certainly not least, let's end with the best case scenario for all involved. I'm talking about us as the clinicians, the patient, the family, case management, and that is home sweet home. So I will say we talk a lot about home care options in our first interprofessional episode on home health aids. So I'm hoping this is not too unfamiliar to you. Yeah, huge plug for that episode if you haven't listened already. There are some really great expert tidbits and and takeaways from that episode. But I think the big thing here is that if your patient's going home and needs some support, it's really going to come from skilled nursing agencies. Completely. I would say the majority of my older adult patients who get discharged from the hospital will require some form of skilled agency support. That could be a visiting nurse to check on things like weights or their blood pressures or blood sugars or a physical therapist or occupational therapist to help them just get back to their functional baseline. But to get them to that support that they need at home, we do have to think about what insurance they have. They'll either need to have Medicaid by meeting a certain income requirement, or if the patient has Medicare, an attending physician needs to certify this patient is quote unquote homebound, which basically just means that this person's going to have some reasonable hardship getting easily to say a physical therapy appointment or to see a nurse in the clinic. 
And that whole certification process is something that we refer to as the face-to-face. You might have heard of it. It's that ever-elusive form that we're always yapping about on our discharge rounds. Good news is it's, it just takes a few minutes, easy to pull up and route over to our case manager or social workers. And something that I always preach to my trainees, both in their discharge summaries and actually something that I think that we can do as attendings, is be mindful in our face-to-face to be as specific as possible about what we want the visiting nurse to do and when and who to call. So I'll give you an example. Instead of writing just check blood sugars for somebody who was admitted for hyperglycemia, I'll write something like, please help the patient check and log their fasting blood sugars daily, and then call me if their blood sugars are less than 70 or greater than 350. And I just like to pretend that I'm writing orders for my visiting nurses just like I would for any nurse on the floors, just being really specific. Props to you, Ryan, for being specific about instructions and kind of giving them an exact number to call. Oftentimes, home care workers feel like they're in kind of this limbo phase with whether they have any questions or if they find any discrepancy at home. For example, one of the papers I looked at, home care nurses found three different beta blockers at home. And so- Oh my gosh. Yeah. When they would call the hospitalist, the hospitalist would be either really hard to reach or say, oh, sorry, I've already discharged this patient. This person's not my responsibility. Or on the other hand, the home health aide would call the primary care doctor for that patient and the, and the PCP would say, sorry, you know, I haven't seen the patient since discharge. And they'd really be in this limbo phase about what to do and, and what kind of next steps there could be. All right, guys, we have gone so many places that I think maybe we should try to summarize with a little Dr. Seuss for this episode. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think it's a good idea. Harder said than done to get it all in Dr. Seuss form, but I'll do my best with some of the big points. Ready? Okay. All right. But on you go. Through the SAR, which is in a sniff, which from nursing home may seem no diff, but you'll get different therapy you'll discover and different insurances will cover. A frightening financial hurdle, but on you'll go. And if you're independent and have some wealth, maybe you'll end up in an assisted living facility for good health. Today is your day. Your transport is waiting, so get on your way. Just call her Dr. Drea. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Just just Dr. Shrey, like Dr. Dre. (laughs) All right. I'm ready for motherhood. Yes, you are. (laughs) And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found the episode helpful, please, please, please share it with your colleagues, your teammates, Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you want to add your own tips or thoughts, tweet us, leave us a comment on our website page, Instagram, or Facebook. Thank you to Dr. Cabo Wang from University of Minnesota for the beautiful accompanying graphic, to Solon Keller for audio editing, to our peer reviewers, Dr. Colleen Christmas and Dr. Anna Garanshi, as well as to the case managers and nursing home directors that reviewed this episode. And thanks to you. As always, we love hearing feedback. Email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. And as always, opinions expressed are our own and do not represent opinions of any affiliated institutions. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.